We are beginning a, a new service, series, new service, we're in the service, we're going to begin a new series, and it's going to take us five weeks, which works out really nicely between Mother's Day last week and Father's Day on June 20th. And so in these five weeks, we're going to take a look at leaders in the church. Uh, we briefly touched on this back in January and, and looked at the fact that God uh, raises up and calls certain individuals to lead within the church and that the two primary leadership roles or serving roles of leadership are the elders and deacons. And you can call them all sorts of things. Baptists traditionally don't have elders, but the deacons often work like an elder board. And then they say, well, the pastor is the, the elder role, the, the guardian, the overseer, the some churches have bishops and elders or pastors and elders and deacons, but over and over again, these two roles, one of spiritual guidance and another of physical material guidance and serving, work together in the church, and we often see that they are plural in Scripture. We never really have the idea of there should only be one elder in a church. That, that as a body, we come together to serve God together, and as those who would be uh, called out to lead, it shouldn't just be on one person, but on, on many, on a body, on a group. And, and, and about one of the best-known passages for this is from the book of 1 Timothy, and, and, and in chapter 3, he lays it out. This is what an elder should look like, and then this is what a deacon should look like. These are the qualifications, you might say, of people who could serve in these roles. And so today we're going to just start with this idea of who should lead, who shall lead, and what kind of a person is God looking for that he would have serve in a leadership role as an elder or as a deacon. And like I said, we go to to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and, and we're, I don't know if we're going to get all the way through 16. 16 ends up with a nice statement about Jesus. We might not have time for it, but we're going to at least begin there in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And beginning at verse 1, Paul writing to Timothy, his uh, disciple, a man that he has been training, says to him, it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. And, and, and we got to point out the fact, it's not the aspiring necessarily that's a good thing, although it could be. I think it's a good thing for us to want to do something. To have a desire to serve is a good thing. To have a desire to lead is a good thing. But the focus is on the office of overseer. It is a fine work he desires to do. To, to be a leader in the church, to be a leader anywhere, really, as long as you're not leading people into temptation, as long as you're not leading them into destruction, to lead is a great thing. It's a good work. And I, I kind of think about that. Our, our HOA, where we live, our HOA, our Homeowners Association, just had a recent election of new board members. And it always cracks me up when, any, you know, when we have these meetings and they send out the letter for people who want to sign up to be a board member. And whenever they select new board members, I always say, oh, they want to move soon. 
Yeah, that's my little inside joke. If you want to be on the board of RHOA, I think that means within five years, you're going to be selling your house. Because it is the most thankless, awful, free job you can possibly do. To try to manage a board, or just to serve on a board, for a neighborhood of hundreds, if not a thousand houses, and all sorts of gripes, and people that are upset that you open the pools, upset that you don't open the pools, upset that you sent me this notice, upset that you're not sending other people notices, all sorts of headaches. And in the 11 years we have lived here, almost all the board members move. Our most recent president, he told me a couple years ago, yeah, we're building a house out in some land out in the, you know, in the country. We're going to be moving soon. And I just laughed. I said, I don't blame you. Because you're living among people that get to the point where they seem to hate you. This role of leadership seems to be thankless in my mind. I think, you know, we often think of politicians the same way. What good person would really want to serve in office? It's a, it's a hard, ugly business to be in politics. And yet, Paul says, to provide oversight, to be a leader, that work is good. And, and what I rail against, really, what I kind of sit there and think, ooh, who would want it? We were watching some Texas representative stuff this week uh, there in session. Just listening to them talk, I thought, God bless them. I don't want it. I would hate. I've listened to our, our county uh, commissioning, commissioner's court on a Tuesday morning. God love them. They pay for their office because they have to sit there every Tuesday morning. And it's awful. It's droning. It's long. To me, I think, who would want this? And you know, a lot of people think the same thing about the church. They think, who would want to be a pastor trying to keep everybody happy? Who'd want to be a deacon always having the troubles of the church on you? Who'd want to put up, you can't keep anybody, you know, this side's upset about this, this side's upset about that. They're all bickering against each other. I've known people to say, I don't know how you do it. What we're talking about isn't the work. What we're talking about is the sin that we associate with the work. But Paul is saying here that leadership is a good work. That to provide leadership in the church, outside the church, this is good. Now there's struggle that comes with it, there's trouble that comes with it. I remember when I was in boot camp and uh, the squad leaders and the guide on, they got thrashed for something other people did and all of a sudden I thought, I don't want to be a squad leader. I don't mind getting thrashed for what I did, but I really don't want to get thrashed for what that knucklehead over there did. I think I'll stay right here. And it was so strange, our entire platoon, we kept the same squad leaders almost the entire time we were in boot camp, and my drill instructors remarked on how odd that was. But it was mostly everybody said, don't want to pay for somebody else's mistakes. They can do it. They can have fun. Let them do it. Leadership comes with a cost. It can come with hardship. It can be a difficult thing to do, but leadership is a good work. You know, so I'll be praying for my HOA board members. I'll pray that when they're 
get off that board, they'll still be wanting to live in our neighborhood because it's a good work that they're doing. It's just, unfortunately, also an ugly work. And the question that comes, you know, as we talk about this good work, and not only that, but, but notice Paul does talk about if a person aspires to it. He says, look, if you've got people in the church, Timothy, who, who desire to do this leadership role, that role is a good thing. And if the role is a good thing, then it's most likely a good thing to aspire to it. Obviously, some people can aspire to leadership roles for bad reasons, but it's a good thing to desire to want to serve. It's a good thing to want to hopefully guide people in a good path, which is what elders and deacons should be doing. But this kind of got me thinking about how do we select, how do we uh, decide who should be in these leadership roles? You know, if, if a person aspires, is it enough for a person just to desire it, to want it? Does a person have the ability just to select themselves and say, I'm going to be the leader here. I'm going to tell you what's going on. I'm going to tell you what to do. This happens in the church. Sometimes people take a leadership role in the sense that they hold a purse string. There are some churches, and a lot of times it's a small family church, and they'll call a pastor, and it's usually a pastor, it's his first church. And the first time they do something wrong... The, church, the family that runs the church will say, you better get back in line or we aren't going to give a tithe. And I've heard so many stories of churches where pastors were trying to, to follow the Lord and, and trying to help the church do a ministry and somebody didn't like it and that person had a lot of clout. And they said, if I leave, you're going to go down to hardly any money. Nobody will be here to pay for your salary. That's a person who decides to have leadership, in essence, on their own. We see this a lot of times in churches where people want to use their influence or use their, their, their money to get things to work. If you don't do this, I'm, gonna, I'm going to leave and I'm going to take these people with me because I have influence over them. That's, I hope we all recognize that doesn't sound like godly leadership, right? But if we look through Scripture, in the Old Testament we see prophets being called, we see uh, you know, Elijah is called, Elisha is called, David is anointed as king. In the New Testament, if we go to Luke chapter 6, Jesus shows up and he's uh, been walking around and preaching and teaching. And then in verse 12, we're told it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also named apostles. So, so Jesus, we see that he selected and appointed twelve men to be apostles. He selected the leaders within his church. And then later on, he selected three more to kind of be his inner circle James and John and Peter. And then even after that, really, he, he, he focused on Simon as the leader of the church. And we see that fulfilled at Pentecost when Simon is the one who gets up and preaches, also known as Peter. Later on in Acts chapter 6, the church is having struggles and some of the women aren't getting fed at the communal tables. And they come and they complain to the, the apostles who are operating in the role of elders of the church. And so the apostles say, well, we don't, 
we don't need to stop doing what we're doing to take care of this problem. So they come to a solution and they say in Acts chapter 6, verse 3, they say, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. This is the first we see of congregational uh, leadership. They go to the Greek people who are complaining. They say, well, look, select among yourselves seven men that have good reputations and are godly and, are, and have wisdom and bring them to us and we can put them in charge of this task. But it, was, it wasn't the apostles saying, oh, we know exactly the seven guys for this. They said, select from among yourselves. Because if the people say, hey, these are the seven, and well, if those seven make a decision that those people don't like, well, they're the ones you, you, you called to it. They're the ones you selected. So hopefully they'll have a little bit more buy-in on their decisions. Later on, as the gospel was being spread and they were going from city to city, in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, Paul, uh, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So we see, as, as Paul was planting churches, he was appointing the elders to lead the church when he left. He was doing that. Not only that, he even gave it to uh, Titus in Titus chapter 1. He tells Titus, he said, For this reason I left you in, in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So even there, Paul is giving Titus the authority to select and appoint elders to set them up. One of the things that is overwhelming through this is that the individual person doesn't get to decide that they're the leader. They don't get to decide that they're going to be an elder or a deacon and, and, and lead this church or lead this activity. But oftentimes, an apostle over them and in sometimes the congregation around them, like in Acts chapter 6. But leaders are chosen by others. Leaders in the church should not just be somebody who decides, I'm going to do it. Hopefully what happens is leaders are recognized by those around them and are called to it. We have a, a congregational polity, which means that we are congregational-led. We don't have some outside board or group or power saying, this is who your pastor is going to be. These are the people who are going to lead you. We as a church call a pastor. We as a church call all the people who serve as staff. We as a church call those who will lead and decide for ourselves as a church what form that leadership should have. That's why even though most Baptist churches have deacons, this church has never had deacons because this church has decided over the first several years and it's continued on not to have deacons. We have that right. Nobody in the Baptist uh, community can come and tell us we have to have deacons. We decide for ourselves. But within our deciding for ourselves, we select and appoint those that that will lead. We Leaders are chosen by others and those around them. So oftentimes when we have that person who is trying to be, you know, well, I'll just put the money up. Love that. 
we need to do this. Let's just put, we'll, we'll give you the money to do it, and then you do it. No, that's not the way we work. It goes to the church for a vote. That's the way it works. That kind of leadership is not chosen by others. That's not in keeping with what we see in Scripture. And in fact, this whole purpose of leadership and choosing those who would lead, it's part of the reason why Paul is writing to Timothy in the first place. It's part of the reason why Timothy is in Ephesus. Paul tells him in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, uh, and you got to understand, Timothy, this letter is a, a quick letter written off without a whole lot of the, the glowing intros that the other epistles have. He writes to him very quickly and says in verse 3, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. They had a problem, uh, probably of people they had already appointed as elders, or those who were trying to be leaders and who were trying to be teachers, and they were teaching bad theology. They were teaching bad doctrines. They were teaching strange doctrines that Paul, while he was there, had not had time to handle or had not had fully been able to, to fix it. He is leaving for Macedonia. He leaves Timothy there and says, this is your purpose, that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. And he continues in verse 4, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. They have a problem in Ephesus of uh, bad teaching, bad leadership, uh, of false teachers even. And so one of the, the, the reasons why Paul is writing this and one of the reasons why we get this information in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is because Paul is dealing with a problem. He is dealing with a problem of bad teachers, of false teachers. And these false teachers are men in the community, and in the church. In fact, two of them, he says later on, he has just given them over to Satan. He says that so many people have given up and haven't kept the faith in a good conscience, and two of them, Hymenaeus and Alexander, he's had to hand over to Satan in the hope that they would not be led to blasphemy. They've got bad teachers there, and Paul is writing to Timothy to help him, give guidance to him, so that he can help select better leaders in this church. One of the things that we see, and, and, and it pains me to say it, but we got to be careful in our choosing of leaders. We have to be careful in who we recognize as leaders because the quality of our leaders affects the church greatly. The quality of our leaders affects the church greatly. And it pains me to say that because it just feels like it puts me under a big old spotlight. How good of a leader am I? Am I doing it right? Are negative things I see my fault? They could be. But the quality of our leaders affects the church. And, and this goes in many ways. Think about the primary Christian leaders in the church today in America. The ones that you hear about, the ones that you see. And as we go through 1 Timothy chapter 3, see if you see qualities listed 
that are displayed by those who are New York Times best-selling authors. See if you have qualities that are displayed by those who have their megachurches but don't want anybody to know how much money they make. And they want you to know there's nothing shady about the fact that they have such a nice house. There's nothing shady at all. In fact, most of the time, they will tell you it was bought with proceeds from their books, not from their income from the church. It's a common refrain if you listen long enough. The quality of our leaders affects the church greatly, not only with poor leaders leading us into poor things, but what if they are a really strong, dynamic, alpha male type leader, and we think that is just the greatest thing ever, and then you actually go and open up your Bible and say, are they living like Christ at all? Is the church in America resembling Christ at all? There's nothing wrong with lively music. There's nothing wrong with a good business plan. But sometimes I fear that we have replaced the Holy Spirit with smoke machines. He doesn't move better with them. We can mask the fact he's not there. And the good business plans, and, and, and all wisdom is God's wisdom, so why not use corporate America's wisdom and knowledge in the church too, the problem is, is that we're not a business. One of the books I got when I was in seminary was by uh, John Piper. And for whatever things that he has right or wrong, in this he was pretty good and right. He said on the title of this book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. To be a pastor is not the same thing as to be a stockbroker or a lawyer. We should not view ourselves as being professionals as having a career. And the more we have done that as a church in America, the more we have taken on business practices and not scripture practices. God does not call us an organization. In fact, he calls the church the household of God, not even a building, a temple, a house of God, but the household, the household of the people within the home. Quality of our leaders affects the church. There's a lot of leadership stuff I see and I read and I hear. And I get to the point where I start thinking, there's not a single reference to Scripture in this. There's not a single reliance on the Holy Spirit in this. It is all, if you're smart enough and you've got a good enough plan, if you're sharp enough and fast enough and quick enough, and if you have the good technology, you can do great things for the Lord. You don't even need the Lord to do it. Sometimes it wouldn't be so bad to have some poor leaders, people who don't quite have the speaking ability or the planning ability. Maybe they would be better leaders than we think. Because what's going to be interesting as we get into this is that you're going to see Paul is not worried about skill sets. Paul is not worried about knowledge. Paul is not worried about uh, managing management capabilities and potential. Let's take a look, and it's a long passage, and we're not going to get into everything right now, but just we're going to take a feel for what kind of things Paul thinks makes the quality of our leadership good. 
Because being a leader in the church is a fine work that a person would desire to do, because it's a good work, an overseer then, because it's a good work, they should be, they must be above reproach, which means that you haven't caught them in anything wrong. That's a very low bar. But still, if you've caught them in something wrong, maybe they shouldn't be a leader. But if they haven't been caught in anything wrong, that's a good starting place. Beyond that, the husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man, which carries the idea of faithfulness. Not so much that you've only ever known one woman in your life or you've only ever been married once. Some churches hold those standards. But the idea, the thrust of it is that you're faithful. That, you're, that they're a faithful type of person. I've known churches that if a man was, had, you know, well, usually they'll have a, a, an allowance for a widower to remarry. I knew a man, he was training to be a pastor, but his church wouldn't let him be a pastor because his wife had been divorced. I think that's taking this, this passage way too far. The focus is, is he a faithful person? Is he faithful? Is he temperate? Sober-minded in the idea. You know, does, do they have a sober spirit? Is he wise? Is he prudent? Respectable? Hospitable? Willing to welcome people in? Are they able to teach? A good thing for a leader, an elder, is are they able to teach? Not a requirement on a deacon. But if you're going to give spiritual guidance and direction, hopefully you're able to teach people. Able to teach. Not addicted to wine, or pugnacious, meaning uh, pugnacious is a great word. It means like they're a fighter. Are they fighter? Do they linger long over the glass? They shouldn't be those ways, but instead they should be gentle, they should be peaceable, and they need to be free from the love of money. Somebody who would be an overseer in the church must be one who manages his own household well. Keeping his children under control with all dignity. And my translation uses this as a parenthetical aside. Uh, in verse 5 he says, But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And here's an interesting thing. To manage means to lead, to stand before, to guide, direct. To care for does not mean the same thing. So, so it's, can he manage his home? If he can't manage his home, how do you expect him to be able to take care of, to provide for, to be tender towards the church of God? Not only that, but in, in verse 6 we see he shouldn't be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. That we shouldn't uh, allow somebody who is recent to the faith to be put in a position of leadership. There should be time and growth and maturity first because if they're too soon, they can get a big head. They can start thinking they're bigger than their own britches. They can act like the devil did. Verse 7, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, it's not enough for him to be honored within the church, but those outside of the church even should hold this person, a leader in the church, with having a good reputation. Well, taking all this together, you might stop and say, ooh, who lives up to this? 
I can read this and say, ooh, I got some areas I need to work on. Same thing goes with the deacons in verse 8. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, not speaking two different things, not addicted to wine as well as the elder was, or fond of sordid gain. Love of money, a sordid gain, similar ideas. But holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience instead. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. There's the idea of reproach again. Uh, elder must be above reproach, the deacons beyond reproach. The idea that you shouldn't be able to catch them in stuff, that they should be living freely and living rightly. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate. Faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of one wife. Same focus as with the elder. Good managers of their children and their household. Same standards apply. And he tells us in verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standard standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Did you see anything about a good planner? Did you see anything about really great retreats? Not even must be a good public speaker. Must know how to repair a toilet. One in there for the deacons. The focus is on their character. The focus is on their reputation that they have, whether or not they're hospitable, whether or not they're peaceful, whether or not they are temperate, they don't get too excited too fast, they don't fight. If you go and look in the history of Fort Worth, you actually have where a pastor of a church, I forget his name, it's beyond my, my years, some of you might have been around for this though, shot and killed a man in his own office at the church because they were having a fight. He should not have been a pastor. Should not be pugnacious, but gentle. Everything that Paul is mentioning to Timothy has to do with patience, gentleness, kindness. Starts sounding like something else, doesn't it? From Galatians, maybe? What he's saying, though, is that throughout our desire for who should lead and what what people should be responsible for the, the, the workings of the church or the spiritual leadership of the church... What matters is not their skill set. What matters is not what, what they're able to do. Character is key to competency in leadership. Whether a person will be good as a leader in the church is dependent upon their character. Sometimes the very things that we uh, get angry with or we get frustrated with in certain people, and we would like them to get out of the way and get somebody who can get things done, well, sometimes those are the very things we need to be more at God's pace, to be doing the things that God wants us to be doing. So often what we choose and, and how we decide on who should lead is based on what we want or what we think we need. And we start looking more like the world and less like Christ. And I think that's the main thing here is that these, these statements, they really are talking about... Uh, Christ-likeness. 
I don't think we need to take what Paul's written here as a checklist and say, does this person have it? Check, check, check. What we're really looking for is, are they growing in Christ-likeness? Are they at least exhibiting most of these? Are they working towards others? Are they growing like Christ? Or are they contrary to these? It's easy to look and say, well, that person's a fighter. Maybe he doesn't need to be a leader. Well, that person, they, they're just out for themselves. They're looking for this sordid gain. Probably don't want to put them in charge of something in the church. It's not necessarily a, a checklist you've got to fulfill all of them. But it's talking about the type and the kind of people that really we should all be trying to become. You know, just because you're not looking for a leadership role doesn't mean you can say, hey, I don't have to worry about being pugnacious. I can be pugnacious all I want. No, you know, take it from one who's sat on this side of things. I'd love it if more people in the church were not fighters. I'd love it if we were more peaceable, gentle, hospitable, and prudent. That's something we can all be working on. And I'm going to go ahead and, and, and finish it out with 14 through 16. We've got a few minutes. Why is Paul writing all this? Why is he focused on this is the kind of person that should be leading? He says in verse 14, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. I'm writing to you, not just this passage that we've looked at, but this whole letter. I'm writing to you so that you would know how to operate, how to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. This is important stuff. It's not just an HOA. It's not just the politics of a nation, which are like a dust on the scale of a, you know, they're like the dust on the scale. No. This is the pillar and support of the truth. This is the church of the living God. This is how we should conduct ourselves. These are the things we should value in those that we appoint to lead. And he says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up in glory. And Paul finishes out with this focus. It's two uh, stanzas there with three lines. Revealed in the flesh, his incarnation. Vindicated in the spirit, his resurrection. Seen by angels, his ascension. Proclaimed among the nations. We take his, his word out to the world. Just like he came in the flesh, we proclaim it to the nations. Believed on in the world. Those who believe the word and the testimony receive the resurrection taken up in glory. It's a reminder for us that while Jesus is away, this is the work we are going about. Preaching among the nations that he would be believed on in the world. The work that he did in coming down and living and dying and rising again. We continue through the proclamation of his word to the nations in the hope that some would believe. That is the purpose that is the purpose of the church, not to build buildings. 
not to have a great Twitter follow, not to have an outstanding online presence. Those might be nice things and they might help, but the goal, the purpose, is the proclamation of who Jesus is to the world that they might believe. And I think there's a good chance people might believe a little bit better if the church behaved a little bit more like Christ. And I think the way it begins for us is through who do we appoint to lead, to serve, as, as those who would be spiritual guides and those who would be those who would serve physically in the different avenues and areas that the church has need of. We all should be looking like Christ. But definitely, especially, overwhelmingly, those who would lead should be those who exemplify Christ. That's his standard. That's his focus. That's his desire for us. Let's make that our goal and our standard of measurement. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the work that You are doing in our lives. We thank You for Your Word and Your guidance and Your wisdom. We thank You, Father, for those that You have placed in our lives who have been leaders to us, those who have served as elders in our lives to give us guidance and direction and oversight to, to steer us away from, from danger and from false teaching. We thank You, Father, for their spirit and their conduct. We pray that we would be that for others. Lord, we don't need titles to be overseers and guardians and guides and spiritual things. Help us to be peaceable, to be gracious, to be loving, to be kind. That we might share and teach those who don't know about Jesus that they could hear the, the Gospel message and believe. Lord, we pray that You would help us to examine our hearts. How much are we like Christ? How much do we reflect, if not living out these traits, at least a desire to be like them and we're not their opposite? Where do we fail You, Lord? And where do we need Your forgiveness and Your help through Your Holy Spirit? Guide us, we pray. Help us to become more like Christ, less like the world. And we pray, Father, for us as a church that you would help us to live more like you and your household than like the world and its businesses. We pray, Father, that you would be working in our hearts and especially for those that might serve us, Lord, shaping them after the heart of Jesus raising them up to look more like Him. Help us to see them in our midst. We pray, Father, for anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, who sees this list and thinks, that's out of reach. I'm, I'm angry all the time. I love money. I want these things, and I'll steal from my friends if I have to. Lord, we pray that You would open their heart to Your Gospel that they would hear of Jesus who died for their sins and who has victory over death, that if they believe in Him, He will forgive them for their sins and give them victory over their lives today. We pray that You would speak to them today.
In Jesus' name, amen.